man, I love that song. I was, uh, I've been, I got a little emotional first service when we sang it because I've been thinking about, reminiscing over the last several months about all that Christ has done in my life. And to do that, I got to go back to the beginning. And the reason I was going back to the beginning is I've shared with you the man who led me to Christ and discipled me for four years is very sick. And so we've had several good cries together, remembering what Christ has done during our years together. And uh, he, he did say, you were the most joyful, you brought me more joy than any man I ever discipled and more frustration at the same time. <laughs> so that's, we laugh too. So praise the Lord for what he has done. Turn with me if you would to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. 2 is the second number. Okay. Well, as I was prepping this week, my mind was on first things. First things are unique. They're fun. They're special. We remember them, right? I thought about watch as college football started. I thought about my first touchdown ever in fourth grade when I thought I was Walt Garrison for the Dallas Cowboys, the great white hope running back. I Thought about my first touchdown in college against the mean old Florida State Seminoles. And I thought I was on my way to the league, but the reality was it was my last touchdown too. First and last, right? And it was also the first time I ever had a concussion as I got knocked out on national TV. I thought about the first car, 1972 Cutlass Supreme. I thought about my first kiss with my wife, Jenna Bean explosions, fireworks. You know what I'm saying? Tell them, Jenna. Same for... <laughs> she felt the same way, I promise you, when she kissed the general. It was a year. We've been dating a year and had not kissed. Lord, have mercy. Remember first child being born, first time being a dad? I remember so distinctly the first time I ever heard a wild turkey gobble in the wild. I had hair. It went straight up. Never gotten over. Immediate addiction, right? I remember my first sermon at Fellowship Bible Church. In the cafeteria, little tables. It was awful. <laughs> I got the manuscript to prove it. Uh, and just some curiosity, history has first two. I looked up, fun fact, 650 B.C. in China, the crossbow was invented. First century B.C., glass blowing originated first in Jerusalem. The fishing reel was created in 400 A.D. in ancient China. So this list obviously could go on and on and on. I think first things are awesome. Yet the reality is rarely, if ever, do these first things stay the same? Meaning they get developed and they mature over time and what was first created is totally different once it, not totally different, but you know, it, it's, it's matured, right? It, it's, it's been developed. Uh, reality is this is what's happening in our text this morning. 
So we have the first church. I've named it the first fellowship, if you would. And, and obviously, we're going to see some things that will be different as the church matures over time. But what's unique about this text, it is the core nucleus of what it means for God's people and what they are to do for the church. There is a warning I want to give us, though, and that is this. American Christianity has been guilty, I think, to think of the first fellowship, the first church, if you would, in the same vein as we would think of Genesis 2, that Acts 2 would be similar, and that Genesis 2 was pre-fall, pre-before sin entered the world, and then somehow we can look at this first church and think it is pristine, and unaffected by sin, untouched by sin. But we got to remember it's not. The churches in Acts are far from perfect. But as I said, they are chasing the right things. They're pursuing the right things. The core is there. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Context is this. Wrap your mind around this. 120 people started, and within one day, your church grew to 3,120. Just pause there. That's why people hire people like Rob Bloss. This is an administrative nightmare, and we'll see that just in a few chapters over. But, but let me just give you a tip of the iceberg of how we're going to see this core in Acts 2, but how it develops and matures. Here in our text, the church is gathering daily. But we'll see they begin to meet weekly in Acts 20. Here in our text is almost entirely dependent on the apostles. And later we will see elders and deacons and people throughout the body using their gift to serve the church. Here we see believers selling their possessions to meet these real needs. But later in 1 Corinthians 16, we see that they set aside a day of the week to put some money back to meet the real needs of the saints. And here in our text, this is a completely Jewish church, except maybe some proselytes who, who had been Gentiles and converted to Judaism. Meaning, if you walked into this church and in one hand you had a bacon, uh, a BLT, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, and a big old barbecue pig sandwich in the other, they're going to scream at you. They're like, what are you doing? It's a Jewish church. They had not realized, and we'll see this later in Acts, that Gentiles and Jews were to be under one umbrella of the gospel to make up the church. So no perfect church, no fully mature church. Maturity takes time. But this is a crucial text for us this morning to see what does the church do. Okay, let me read for us. Acts 42, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came about upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day who were being saved. So the first thing we see from our text is this is a learning church. Luke is now in some ways showing us the results of Pentecost. When 3,000 came to Christ, the effects of Pentecost. And the first thing we see, it is a learning church. To see this learning, we need to go back one verse, verse 41 that Monty taught on last week, Acts 2. It says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So when it says those who received his word, what is that? They received the, un, the word of the gospel. They learned the gospel. They heard the gospel because Peter had taught it. Peter had preached it to those 3,000. And what it really signals to us is that the church is for saved folks. The church is made up of those who've been redeemed, converted. Uh, certainly anybody can come to church, and we want that. But the church is for those who know Christ. So you become a member of God's family, not by going to a church, but by placing your trust in Christ alone. And then the scriptures tells us that you are baptized, as Monty spoke on last week, to show the world which family you belong to. R.C. Ryle says that hell is a place full of people crying out, but I went to church and I was baptized. If you ask me, the vast majority of evangelistic conversations that I've had in nearly 20 years in Murfreesboro has been convincing people that just because you grew up in church and were baptized, you were not a believer. Because when I asked you what made you a believer, you gave me good works. Red flag. Going to church certainly, as we say, does not make you a Christian like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac, right? <laughs> or going to Chick-fil-A doesn't make you one of them new sandwiches with pimento cheese on it. Anybody had that thing? Somebody get me one. <laughs> I got to break my keto diet for that one. But trust in Christ alone does, and when you become a Christian, you're a member of God's big C church, and then you live out that status within the confines of a local body, hopefully for a long time. But not only did they learn the gospel, look at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what happened was they came to Christ, the Holy Spirit opened up, if you would, uh, a, a, a kindergarten class with 3,000 students attending. These new church members are, are not to throw away their minds and just get a feeling. I hear people all the time say, well, I don't have a feeling. No, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And that's why we use our minds to learn truth. And what they did, it was obvious. They sat at the feet of the apostles, hungry to receive instruction. It was a day in and day out of prioritizing their spiritual feeding. Now, if you've had a baby or you've been around babies, the one thing we can tell you is they prioritize what? Their feeding. 
They are hungry, and they let you know. Looking at Miss Parker with a little babe, she's like, yep. They let you know. I, my feeding is a priority. And you either respond or you suffer, right? <laughs> I also think it's important to understand why they were so hungry. It's a great question for us to ask and answer. Are you hungry? And if not, why? Here's why they were. Context tells us this. In, in, in our Christianized culture, I think it is hard for us to imagine and understand the mental and emotional, stressful agony the Jews had to go through to break away from Judaism and to publicly declare their all-in commitment to the Lord Jesus through baptism. The reason is, at that moment, they would be abandoned by their family. They would be abandoned by their friends. Phil Herndon has said the greatest pain a human can endure is abandonment. They lose family, friends, their whole culture. One that they grew up in that was everything to them, gone. Many times they lost jobs, they lost their homes, etc. So what I want you to know here, we're dealing with, they're devoted and they're hungry because they have to be. This is all they got. Tim Keller says, Jesus is, all, is not, Jesus is all you, I don't know what he says, something like that, I forgot. <laughs> what I want to say though is, this is no easy believism. This is no fire insurance converts. They were saved with a capital S, and because of what was at stake their entire lives, they were hungry to learn of their great new Savior. John Stott describes this learning church. He says, the New Testament church is one that studies and submits to the Scriptures. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. And they did so here. It uses this word devoted. It has connotations of steady, consistent, faithful, priority. It's not perfect. It's not legalistic. It's not tight. Seven days a week, every day at 4.59 a.m., I'm going to meet with God. Check box. No. Consistency. Faithfulness. A prioritizing the learning of God. They wanted to feed their souls. They were new, reborn souls, and they were hungry. Look at our portrait of the connected life. You've seen it, right? What is right in the middle? The what? The gospel. What happens is when we come to Christ, we have to learn the gospel. It is the core of everything. It is where everything on that diagram gets its fuel. And the first thing you do after you learn the gospel is you meet upward with God through his what? Word. We didn't create that. It's just a picture of the reality here in Acts 2. And we get fed. We meet upward with God in his word in really three primary ways. One is your personal devotions. And that needs to be consistent, faithful, and prioritized. 
on your calendar. I know you got time because I know you can scroll, right? I know you got time because every Saturday, I'm going to watch a four-hour Clemson football game. Guarantee you. Prioritize. Go Tigers. (laughs) Second way is worship gathering, like we're doing. The third way is a small group study with brothers and sisters. And and here's what I want to say to us. This is not a guilt trip. This is not you know, manipulating you. But what I have found that is so helpful for me and many others who are, uh, who are, want to be a learner is to have some kind of rhythm when it comes to personal devotions, worship gathering, and being in a small group study, learning with brothers and sisters. It doesn't have to be every day doesn't have to be every fall, every winter. But as you look back on your Christian life, you're going to see three things that have been prioritized over time. You're going to see meeting with the Lord yourself. You're going to see consistency coming to worship together. And you're going to see consistency to meet with a small group of brothers and sisters. So in light of that, this morning, what'd you get? You got two sheets. Women, you got one. Men, you got one. You got to look at that. And I know lives are busy, but you want to look at it and it says, in light of my whole schedule, am I really prioritizing my time to be a learner? The big question, though, is this. Are you spiritually hungry? If you are, your schedule will show it as a priority. Here's how R.C. Sproul spoke to this issue of being hungry. He said, we fail in our duty to learn God's word, not because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it's boring, but because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence. It's because we are lazy. I would add to that simply that we fail, just like I have many occasions, to see my great need. Lazy and seeing our need. So we have a learned church. Secondly, we have an amazed church. And it says in verse 43, and all came upon every soul because the really summary here, the many miracles being done by the apostles. Uh, this word all is uh, phobos or fear. It's the word where we get phobia from. Uh, think of this summer when we did the Proverbs study, right? We talked often about the fear of the Lord And miracles, like what's happening here on the scene, both for Jesus and the apostles, often happen in some ways to verify or give proof that Jesus was who he said he was and to this new message that was going out. Now, even today, I've read what I say trusted accounts over the last 40 years, reading different articles and hearing from different people I know in the mission field, where these kind of things could happen and would happen, especially in places where the gospel is going for the first time to unreach people groups. So I have no problem with that. Can God still do miracles? Absolutely. He is God. But our approach, my approach to this is open but cautious. Always open to the move of God. I am not he. 
but always cautious. Does it match Scripture? Does it contradict with Scripture? But here's what I want to tell us. We have the final word. 66 books of the Bible, 79,847 Hebrew words in the Old Testament. It took me a long time to count those. And 138,150 New Testament Greek words. And the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God is where you and I know God, not from a miracle or an experience. And here's what else I want us to hear this morning. The word all. When used in Scripture, is used for times when people's minds and hearts are stunned because of some powerful divine reality. And the greatest divine reality that has ever occurred in the history of the world and will ever occur in the history of the world is the gospel. It is a miracle. It is a miracle the greatest miracle ever that God could save a dead man and give him spiritual life. Our failure to recognize that makes the gospel ho-hum, drab. In some ways, we get used to saying, yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. Ain't that cool? Yeah, I'm so excited about it. Well, I can tell by your voice, right? Folks, we were entitled. We were entitled to spend eternity in hell, and it didn't happen. I, I, want you to, I want you to join me in thinking about how we need this awe of the gospel. And that is, the apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he killed. That's how the gospel works. It's mind-blowing. It has, it, 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 it's, it's the greatest news ever. Isn't that what the tech, New Testament tells us? Paul, because he understood that, never got over the awe of the gospel, and neither should we. Again, R.C. Sproul speaks to keeping how to keep this godly all on fire. He says, when I think I'm unfairly hated, I just remember that I'm unfairly loved. What makes a great church? Part of what makes a great church is a bunch of spiritually alive men and women walking around wherever they are and preaching the gospel to their own souls and to each other. And if you don't know how to preach it to your own souls, you won't ever preach it to another soul. The gospel is not a one-time act when we believe it. We're to preach it to ourselves to, so we can keep this awe about what God has done that we sing about. God never gets tired of telling us the gospel. He speaks it over us in his word. The scriptures tell us he sings it over us from his throne, and he gives us the gift of each other to say it to each other. And here's how we know we're getting it. One way is that when we hear of a brother or sister who is grossly sinned, we don't go, you're sick. No, we hurt with them, we feel sad for them, we grieve with them, 
and we think in our own hearts where no one can see it, but by the grace of God go me. And we embrace them right where they are and say, let's get out of this, brother and sister. Here's how G.K. Chesterton put that little scenario. He says, there is a great lesson in the story of the beauty and the beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. That a thing must be loved before it is lovable. And when that person who has sinned grossly is caught in that sin and we rally around him with grace and truth and time and he grows out of that sin and he has a story that the song says that what? What he has done, often, more than not, that person spends the rest of their life helping others with the same area that they failed in. It's a miracle. The thing must be loved before it is lovable. So we have a learning church. We have an amazed church. And thirdly, we have a loving church. It uses the phrase here, devoted themselves to fellowship. This word is probably, as you know, the most famous Greek word known by your average churchgoer. What is the word? Kononia. I knew Greek when I went to seminary. I said, well, you know, Kononia. Felt good about myself, right? Now, it comes from our English word common, and it bears witness to the common life of the church. There's two things I want us to note here. The first is, Konania expresses what we share together. We are in a Trinitarian relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and each other. John Stott says this Konania is a Trinitarian experience. Then secondly, I want us to note that Konania is also used to express what we share outward together, meaning it is in what we give and receive. And here's how we know. A first cousin, if you were, of this word kononia is the word kononikos. And kononikos means generous. And it's both of these that Luke is referring to, what we share together and what we share outward. In verse, verse 42b, this Kononia, the first part of the first one is shared Trinitarian experience, meaning we are connected to each other in a spiritual, mysterious way because of the blood of Christ, because of we're brothers and sisters. And what it is meant to tell us who we are, what family we belong to, and ultimately, maybe one implication is that we would love a brother and sister in Christ more than we even love our kinfolk. It's a, it's a one-upmanship in some ways of our own kinfolk. And some of you are going, that ain't hard. I got some crazy kinfolk, right? Or you are the crazy kinfolk. Here's what Luke wrote in Luke 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, remember that verse? and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus telling us to hate our parents? No. He is saying, my love is so great for you because I knew you before your parents did. I actually created you, and I want you to understand that 
The goal is for you to grow in such a way, for you to grow to love me in such a way that when you look at your love for me compared to your love for your kinfolk, the separation of the two is so drastic that it looks like hate. So look at each other. Somebody that's not blood kin to you and say, yo, what up, cuz? Go ahead, say it. Somebody. I ain't lying to you. But also, kunania, as I said, means all that first cousin word means generous. And in verses 44 and 45, the context here explains this buy, this selling and giving of property and money and meeting needs. We got to remember that the vast majority of these 3,000 folks are from out of the country. They're out of town. They're from all over the known world. So they arrive in Jerusalem, going to stay a week, celebrate two feasts, and get back home. But because of all that God was doing, they're there. They have legitimate needs, food and clothing and shelter. And we see that. And so Luke here is describing the way in which these first Christians shared their possessions in order to generously meet those needs. Just to clarify, this is not communism. This is not being compulsive. You can still own a home. Matter of fact, the next verse over in 46 said they were meeting in homes, so they didn't sell all their homes. What it is, it's biblical stewardship. It's saying, I don't own anything. There's nothing that is mine. It is living with an open head instead of a tight fist. And under the Holy Spirit's direction, I am open to God, to stewarding his things and stuff, and I'm open to his move to help me see who it is I need to help in a very practical way. Needs in the family are met by the family. D.A. Carson says Christian fellowship is Christian caring, and Christian caring is Christian sharing. John Christendom, the early church father and archbishop of Constantinople, says this about verses 44 and 45. I love this. They called nothing their own. The root of evils was cut out. Nothing, none envy, none grudge, no pride, no contempt was there. The poor knew no shame, and the rich knew no haughtiness. Do you see the withward with the body? Do you see the inward with the body? That's the church. Fourthly, we got a worship in church. The phrase is devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What we see here is that their fellowship was expressed not only in caring for each other, but also in corporate worship. This breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. However, often in the Jewish culture, they would have what would be called a bigger meal or a love feast, and the night would end with the Lord's Supper, so it could be either. But also, we have the, these prayers indicating uh, a prayer service or meeting. Konania continues not only through communion but and prayer, but look at verse 47. They say they are praising God. Scholars say they're probably just sing, singing the Psalms 
to the top of their lungs. I love what we see here, folks. This worship was both formal and it was what? Informal. It was formal in the sense that it was taking place in the Rome in the uh, Jewish temple court called Solomon's Colonnade, and also was informal because it was taking place in homes. Does that sound familiar? The two primary ways we worship at Fellowship Bible Church is corporate worship and in community groups. I, we didn't come up with it. It was right there, the blueprint for it. Here's how F.F. Bruce speaks to this formal, informal. He says, certainly it is always healthy when the more formal services of the local church are complemented with the informality of the home meetings. There is no need to polarize between the structured and the unstructured, the traditional and the spontaneous. The church needs both. Amen and amen. Verse 46 tells us they are glad. They have generous hearts among those worshiping. That Greek phrase says sincerity of heart. I love this because it, it declares their posture, declares their attitude. There, there's nobody here going through the motions. And I grew up going to church and going through the motions that believe the gospel. They're growing in Christ. God is at work through ordinary but profound means of grace, the word of God, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And they're meeting each other's needs with great generosity, sharing all in common that is taking place in this first fellowship. Let me say, though, before we go to the last point, that's, I'll tell you what's not happening here. There's no entertainment. It has nothing to do with this first church. And I say that because our culture, as it continues to, Rage forward, I have seen countless videos of churches who say on their website what they believe doctrinally is the same as ours, and yet they're doing sermon series off a movie, Star Wars or Barbie or a dinosaur movie, what was it called? Jurassic Park, all the spiritual truths. And you walk in their lobby and it's dinosaurs or rockets or spaceships and it's Disneyland 2.0. You won't see that here, by the way. And here's why. I want to give you, in my opinion, the most profound church worship truth. What you draw them with is what you must do to keep them. What you draw them with is what you must do to keep them. If you draw them for the smoke and entertainment and movie truths, you got to do it more. You got to get bigger and get louder and more professional and better. And if you draw them with the gospel, you keep preaching the gospel. Monty mentioned baptism last week. There's another one here. It's obviously the Lord's Supper. We are given two sacraments by Jesus. Baptism is the declaration of whose we are to the world. And the Lord's Supper is to help us remember why we are whose we are. Very powerful. 
Lastly, the evangelistic church. Learning church, maze church, a loving church, a worshiping church, an evangelistic church. <clears throat> Imagine with me, you got all these new Christians, right? In Jerusalem, they're in the Solomon's colonnade, if you would, out in the temple courts. And they see their Jewish friends, acquaintances, maybe even strangers in the early morning, afternoon, coming in, and they got, a, they, got a, they got a lamb on a leash, or they're carrying a lamb, or they got some kind of cart they're pushing with lambs in to take to the temple to slaughter for the forgiveness of their sins and their families. And they say, ho, whoa, come here. You had a pretty lamb, but you don't have to kill it anymore because the final and ultimate lamb was already slaughtered for you. Let me tell you about this Jesus that you've been hearing about. That's happening. It's wild. Does that sound wild? Yeah. How do you know it's happening? Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor. So they got favor. They're having those conversations. That will change soon. And it says, but the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Hmm. Someone was sharing the gospel with the people at this time. Big picture, what's happening here is that the inner life of the church is strong. The inner life of this first fellowship, if you would, is strong. What's happening? They are learning. They stand amazed at God's gospel. They are loving one another. And they are worshiping. And so when the inner workings of a church's life are strong, the natural outflow of that or overflow of that is to move outward with the mission to a lost strong, to a lost world. In some ways, it's called a biblical philosophy of ministry. Here's what's unique about that. We preach, for example, the Bible in context because if you preach just verse, preach just verse 42, you're going to get a lopsided view of what the church is. If you preach just verse 47, you're going to get a lopsided view of what the church is. But when you put it together, you see that the church certainly is, is saved people. And secondly, they are being spiritually led by the apostles to live out what Paul says in Ephesians 4 when he goes from sort of the oak tree down to the details of the acorns. And he says that what we're supposed to be doing, I lost my place, is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's what's happening through learning, amazed, loving, worshiping. And when we're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, that's our job. Then we go outward with the ministry. What I want to know is, and what we're going to focus on this next year, is can we normalize telling others about Jesus? This is not radical Christianity. I know you think, I'm not Billy Graham. When neither of these people, they got goats hanging on them. Can we normalize having conversations about the Lord Jesus, who he is, all that he's done, and all that he can do? 
Harry Boer, seminary prof, put it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created the missionary church. The Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motif. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness and the power of the Spirit relentlessly or restlessly the Spirit drives the church to witness, and continually churches rise out of the witness. The church is to be a missionary church, or she will be nothing. The last thing I want you to notice about verse 47 is this. Who is it? Who is it? Look at it closely. Who is it that added the number to their midst day by day? Who? That's why we share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. I want us to understand as we move through this year with the emphasis on our, with the mission, you and I are powerless to make anybody believe or even disbelieve. It is God who illumines their mind and heart, who creates a need, who calls them to himself. He's the one. We are his messengers. We're his mouth. Pieces. We are his conduit. Yes, he doesn't write it in the sky, although he could. But he has made us ambassadors of the greatest divine reality in the history of the world. And it is he who does that. And here's what else we're not powerless over, or that we are powerless over. I am powerless to determine how a person is going to respond to me. I'm powerless as they hate me. I'm powerless if they don't like me. I'm powerless if they mock me. I'm powerless if they put me on social media as a religious nutcase. So I don't care. I'm powerless. What I am, what I do have power over is what I say to them about Christ and clarity with the greatest divine reality ever. Outward with the mission and evangelistic boldness. That's how we say it at Fellowship Bible Church. So this morning, as we take a do a so what, I want you to look at one of these areas and say, man, that's an area that I need to grow and change in. And secondly, I want you to think about the rhythm of your life in terms of being a learner of the word and what you may need to sign up for. Take a minute to do just that.
we come to this morning, we're grateful for this snapshot, if you would, for this picture uh, that sort of tells us what are the core guts of the church, uh, what we're to do in church, what the goal is. We're so grateful for that. I pray you would find us faithful here at Fellowship to live that out, to be learning church on down all the way to an evangelistic church. Help us to be strong internally to be, and then to be an outward overflow of that strength that you create here. Help us to normalize conversations about Jesus. No one's radical. It's normal Christianity. Step one of a million. We love you, and more than anything, I pray that we would Renew if if we've lost it, this all about the greatest divine reality ever. That's what keeps us fresh. That's what keeps us tender toward you. Help us to do that.